God, we believe that wherever the nature of the Lord is spoken of, there he is present. And so we know that you so desire to be present here in this place. God, we know that there are so many people in this room that just walk in with all sorts of stuff, and you desire to find us in that, to be present to us in that. And so we ask for your help this morning to see you, to be interrupted, to uh, be surprised by your love and grace in our life. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, we in the church world, we call Easter our Super Bowl. I mean, emails to all of my staff last week, guys, this is the Super Bowl. I mean, if you are on paid or unpaid staff here, you know we had last week on lockdown. We were ready to go. We were excited. I mean, goodness gracious, we got me into a tie, okay? And it wasn't like there was a Snickers, and then I like went near the Snickers, and then like Steph lassoed the tie around me. Believe it or not, I willingly put on the tie, and as soon as I said amen at the last service, I yanked that tie off last week. I don't know if you saw it. It almost caught fire. And, uh, and we, we, our, this room was prayed up. Our staff was ready to go. We had stuff ready to go for kids. Our teams practiced extra. We, we were ready to go because Easter in the life of the people of Jesus is like the Super Bowl. It's just that event, and here's why. Easter is the death of death. I mean, what we celebrate as Easter is that Jesus' death tramples over death, but that in his rising, we are set free from these things that kind of weigh us down and hamper us and set free to live life with Jesus, not just now, but literally forever. There's so much goodness about Easter. It's like the Super Bowl. And so there was food and food and food last week, and we made sure everything was really ready to go. I mean, when the Patriots won the Super Bowl, and some of you are really impressed that I even know that. When the Patriots, yes, when the Patriots won the Super Bowl, I mean, there was a party, was there not? I mean, there was confetti, there are trophies, there are t-shirts, there are interviews, there's, there's parades. I mean, this is kind of what we're talking about. And so you would imagine on that first Easter Sunday, that first Super Bowl in the life of the people of Jesus, that there would just be celebration that those first disciples would be like, oh my gosh, everything Jesus said to us is true. We need to throw a party. We need to celebrate. But if you thought that, if you thought there was celebration that first Easter Sunday, you'd be wrong. Because our story on this first Easter Sunday begins behind a locked door. The disciples aren't partying. They're not celebrating. They're not singing. They're hiding. We're looking at John 20, chapter 19, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. A lot of it's going to be on the screen. You can Google it on your phones. It'll come up. There's paperback Bibles underneath you. You can grab that. But in John chapter 20, verse 19, those moments initially after Jesus' resurrection, John says that that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're meeting, but they're not really meeting, okay? Sometimes the New Testament, which is originally written in Greek, it sounds a little like Yoda, okay, to really emphasize what's going on. And so in Yoda-like fashion, the Greek of this verse literally says, the doors were shut where the disciples were. Try or try not. There is no, no, do or do not. There is no try. I mean, the doors were shut where the disciples were. See, they're not having a meeting. They're not getting together and saying, hey, who can we hire to be the next Messiah? Uh, they're not trying to figure out what the next thing is. They are hiding because their, their master, their friend, was strung up on a cross for being a rebel and an insurrectionist, and now they're wondering if they're next. And so our story begins behind a locked door. They're closed off from the world, and they cower in fear. And though Christ is risen, and the promises are true, and the kingdom is at hand, those first followers of Jesus hid 
on Sunday. And I can't help but wonder if we've been hiding ever since. I can't help but wonder if we, the people of Jesus, have been hiding ever since. Because here's the reality. If you love Jesus, or maybe you're not even there yet, but you came to church last weekend, you looked good, you were dressed up, you were ready to go, you were ready to party. But can I tell you, I can't help but wonder if the people that drove by on State Road on Sunday afternoon last weekend really just saw a locked door. Or maybe they saw something that looks like this, like a castle. Now, when, when you see that picture, what question comes to your mind? How do I get in? Julia, 50 bucks, like we talked about for answering that, right? Um, how do I get in? See, I think people drive by our church, man, and they are just, they, they don't know how to get in. There might as well be a moat. There might as well be no drawbridge. And I know what you're thinking. Kyle, you're pretty funny, so I like to come here, UT, and you're really good looking, so... Um, I know what you're thinking, Kyle, there's really nice people in this room. I know what you're thinking, man, we're really, really friendly here. But I'll tell you what, they don't know that on the other side of the moat and up the wall and in the window, there are friendly people. They just drive by and, and they see a castle. And so here we are, the people of Jesus celebrating Easter, and people are just driving by, they don't even know what's going on in there. You know, the question is, how does somebody get in? I actually think the better question of Easter is how do we get out? How do we get out of there? You know, for all intents and purposes, my office is in the dungeon. Do you know what I mean? How do I get out of there? How do you and I get out of there? Can I tell you, this is what's crazy, is that on Easter Sunday and after Easter, Jesus shows up in our locked rooms. He shows up in our castles, and he does a remarkable thing. He opens the door. He opens the door. Look at what happens in John chapter 20, verse 19. It says, the disciple, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, and suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Listen to me, the fully resurrected Jesus is a fully embodied Jesus. He's not a spirit. He's not a ghost. He's not Casper. He can't just come in and out of the walls. In, in our glorified resurrected bodies, the post-resurrection body Jesus has is the body you and I will have in heaven, which is good news because it means I'm not like on a cloud with a harp because that'll get boring after like 30 seconds because I don't even know how to play the harp. You know what I mean? In heaven, we will have bodies just like Jesus and evidently, bonus, we can walk through walls. I don't know if that means there's a lot of walls in heaven. I don't know what the privacy rules are. There's going to probably be like RAs, you know, like making sure that we're all behaving. Um, no, we're, we, you can, Jesus walks through this wall, appears in this room amongst his disciples, appears on the other side of this locked door with them, and he shows them the wounds in his hands and on his side, he says, peace be with you. And something remarkable happens inside of them. They find joy. It says, they found that they were filled with joy. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 16, before he died, he said, you're going to weep and mourn over what's going to happen to me. But then, the, and, but the world is going to rejoice. You will grieve, but here he says, but your grief will suddenly turn into joy. 
So you have sorrow now, Jesus says, but I will see you again, and then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. Jesus' words in John chapter 16 become true because they see the risen Jesus in this locked room, and the text says that they were filled with joy. If you're coming to our lunch, Art Art and Pam are going to be leading a small group here coming up on a book called Joy Starts Here that I really can't wait for a lot of you to get into. Um, And to summarize it, it's how do I have joy in my life and give away joy to others when I've got all of my junk. So it's gonna help us figure out our junk a little bit, and then it's gonna help us bring joy into our lives and the lives of others, and it's gonna do something in a hobby that I find interesting. It's gonna teach us relational brain skills. If you wanna know what I read when I'm bored, I read neuroscience. I know, but that neuroscience is opening up all these worlds where Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He means it, he means it, and so, in that book, they define joy as joy is that feeling I get when I know that somebody is glad to be with me. Joy is the feeling I get when I know that somebody is glad to be with me. What happens on Easter Sunday, man? Jesus shows up in the room. He's with them. And, he's, and, they, and they find joy that they cannot shake. They find joy that they cannot keep to themselves. They find a joy that blows the door off of that room. You see, a few months from now, these cowardly hiding men will be described as men who turn the world upside down. They find a joy so remarkable that they cannot help but share it with others, and it turns the world upside down. Do you know what the measure is for the people of Jesus? Not how good was the music and what do you have for my kids, although those things are important, it's this. It's how are we doing at turning the world upside down? How are we doing at turning the world upside down? Jesus gives them this joy that blows the doors off that room. He opens up the door to the castle, opens up the door to the locked room, and he invites us out. You remember that quote from N.T. Wright last week? He, He said something really fascinating. He said, the new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of this present world. That, quite simply, is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown open before us. Listen, Jesus opens that door and he says, come on out here with me. I want you to join me in this work of making all things new. And that, my friends, is a tall order. That's a tall order. And so the good news is that Jesus opens the door and he stands outside and he gives us three gifts as we step from the gloom into the bright sunlight of Easter. He gives us three gifts. He gives us his purpose, he gives us his peace, and he gives us his presence. He gives us his purpose, he gives us his peace, He gives us his presence. Look at what happens in chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. It said, again, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, they they are not forgiven. Here's what happens on Easter. You and I, in the bright sunlight, are recruited. We are commissioned. In fact, we are drafted into joining Jesus in this work of making all things new. We are drafted into it. We don't even get to really choose. 
Jesus says that the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Listen, the people of Jesus, the church, we are not a social club. We are not a political action committee. We're not a committee of any kind. We're not a special interest group. If you are looking for someone to perpetuate your interests and your preferences, you should just start a club because it'll be more fun and probably be cheaper. No, Jesus has called together an army. He has called together a task force. And he has said, you and I are to join him in that. And the dra- all the letter that we got that said that was, hey, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the church only is the church when it exists for the sake of others. So Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So what does it mean that Jesus was sent took a look at the Gospel of John, the word sent is used 54 times. The word sent is used 54 times. I think John wants us to get something. And so what does Jesus say? He, He says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. He said, I tell you the truth, those who listen to my message and believe in the God who sent me have eternal life. He said, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of the God who sent me, not my own will. He said, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned us by the one who sent us. He said, for when you see me, you're seeing the one who sent me. Jesus comes, he is sent by the Father with a message. And then he says, I am sending you with a message. Thank you, Jesus, for babies. I I am sending you with a message. You may have heard somebody say, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Let me tell you why. First of all, that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis started an order of preachers, so I don't think he was interested in us not preaching. Here's what it really means. Preach the gospel at all times, and by the way, it's always necessary to use words. And oh gosh, all of a sudden, now aren't we in a pickle because I'm uncomfortable by that. I don't know how to say that. Can't I just like give a little bit of money and let, Kyle, you're a professional Christian. Go do that for me. Julia, go do that for us. You're a professional Christian. Go do that. No, no, no. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending y'all. It's an inclusive word. It's not like, you know, one of the disciples was like, oh, you mean him. Okay, you know, no, it's, it's all of us. And he sends us, Jesus does this interesting thing, right? He sends us with this thing of, if y'all forgive anybody's sins, they'll be forgiven. And if you, if they're not, they will not be forgiven. Ooh, if you... Forgive anyone. Listen, these words actually appear in legal language in courts. And in the Jewish community, if, you know, Vanessa sinned, we excluded her from the community until she had a trial. And then we had a trial, we heard from witnesses, and if we decided, if we decided we could forgive her, we could loose her and free her into our community. Or we could say, hey, that was bad. You're bound. You need to stay outside the community. Jesus says, if you loose anyone, they are loosed, and if you bind anybody, they are bound. Jesus is giving us the keys to the kingdom. Jesus is giving us the door to the castle. He is giving us the keys to the castle. He is telling us that we are sent to include people in this community, and it is not them who are sent to us for us to then include. We are sent people. I know that's kind of conceptual. It's the best I could do. We, 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 we are sent people with a message of this. You can be forgiven. We are sent with a gospel of forgiveness. We are sent with a message that the things that we hold ourselves on the hook for, we don't have to be held on the hook for. And we are included in a community. 
We are included in a community of forgiven people. We are sent, Jesus says. Jesus offers us his purpose. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he offers us his peace. Twice in this text, what does Jesus say? Twice. Peace be with you. It's not just like a high five. And if you were raised in the Catholic church, like that's what you do, right? Like, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be. It's like a spiritual high five. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is doing something else. He's come to offer us his peace. Our ministry staff, paid and unpaid, this is what we did this week. Somebody did a funeral for a guy who was 26 and committed suicide three hours before going into rehab after being addicted for 14 years. We did that funeral. Somebody uh, talked to a preteen girl who found her brother dead. Somebody uh, had a hard conversation with a friend of a friend who has walked away from the church because this friend of a friend's sister has made some decisions and somebody said, hey, you need to, you're gonna burn in hell because of that. And so he's like, I don't want anything to do with that. They had that conversation over coffee. <laughs> somebody met with some people in the hospital that are dying. I was with a guy that's 34 and on hospice care. Keeps having stroke after stroke after stroke. I mean, we're just kind of counting down the days. We've had hard conversations with our friends that don't believe yet. We have friends that don't, are challenging us on some of our faith, and so we're having those questions. And can I tell you what? Being sent by Jesus is really hard. So I'm not going to pretend it's not. I'm not going to tell you that the way of Jesus is just come, throw some money in the bucket, sing a little bit, have some friends, and go about your life. Because that's not what this is about. Jesus has drafted you into hard work. Jesus has drafted us into uncomfortable conversations. But twice Jesus says, peace be with you. Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 27, he said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and peace of heart. And the peace I give is the gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. He said, I told you all of this, that you may have peace. Here on earth, you'll have many troubles and sorrows, Jesus says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus offers his peace to his disciples in those first after Easter moments. He offers it to you and I, but the peace he has in mind isn't kumbaya, snuggly peace. It's not cuddle up with Jesus peace. It's not, I know you're anxious inside, but Jesus is going to sprinkle his Harry Potter magic all over that and it's going to go away. That's not the peace he's talking about. It's the peace that I walk into a funeral for a guy that just committed suicide and I am calm. It is the peace of our staff having this conversation with this preteen girl about this hard thing in her life and saying, this doesn't have to be the most defining in your moment in your world. It is peace that when something on one of our ministry teams goes sideways, we're chill. It is peace that when somebody asks a pointed question about the gospel, if this is true, is it true that my sister is going to burn in hell? It is peace that makes us be able to breathe and not freak out when asking that question. Now, let me tell you about something. The post game after those moments is when you freak out. I tell you what, listen, my whole life is, okay, be calm, be calm, be calm, be calm, peace, 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 peace. And then I get in the car with my wife and I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing just happened and I need to process it. But in the midst, it's, it's peace. It's peace that sends Joey and Julia to Iraq. It's peace that sends us into ministry. Jesus gives us this umbrella of peace. A commentator said, at a profoundly personal level, Jesus is summing up the essence of his work and presence in the world. Peace is the gift of his kingdom. See, peace is what happens when you and your spouse are kind of wrestling for your marriage and peace descends. Peace is what descends when you are talking to your kids through a faith conversation 
and you don't know what to say, but you, you're chill. Peace is the gift of the kingdom that helps us in our sentness be chill for a minute, to respond well, to respond calmly. See, we want to get out these window, out of these doors. We want to go be sent, and that's hard. But Jesus says, you're under the umbrella, the covering of my peace. So he gives us his purpose, he gives us his peace, and then he gives us his presence. Jesus calls us to join him on mission, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. He gives us his peace so that we can be calm while we do it. Because nobody really is interested in Jesus when you're like, hey, hey, this is great. You know what I'm saying? It's just chill. But then look at this. Jesus says, then it says this little nugget, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In this locked room, Jesus grabs their faces. And well, he's resurrected, so his breath probably always smells good. And Jesus grabs their faces and he just breathes the Spirit of God on them. Now listen, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity. We believe in one God in three persons. If I talk much more than that, I'm heresy, okay? This is all we really know. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are distinct people, but they are also all God. And there is one God who exists eternally in th as three persons. The Father sends the Son, and then the Son gives us the Spirit. And the Spirit is Christ's own presence. Now, Jesus, here's your fancy theological word for the morning, so see if you can stick with me. Uh, Jesus gives them a Sam's Club sample of the Spirit. Because in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls in fullness in Jerusalem. So we can't have Scripture contradicting. So Jesus just gives them a sample of the Spirit. He gives them a sample of his own presence. And he does it by breathing on him. Now listen, I don't know about you, but every once in a while I'll say, man, my boss is really breathing down my neck. And so we hear Jesus breathes on us, and I, I, ooh, I don't know if I want... That sounds, that sounds intense, but what if, it's not, what if it's not that Jesus is breathing down your neck in anger? What if it's that he's so close to you as you are sent under his peace? What if he's so close to you that you can just feel his breath? Now, there was two ways I wanted to go with this, so let me kind of get the one out of the way and you know, have my cake and eat it too. And the one was this. The greatest sadness of my late 20s is that I still have acne. I really thought, I really thought, truth be told, I, when I was 16 and gross, I used to think, you're going to be 30 and it'll be fine. And I'm getting closer to 30 any day and it's still, nothing's happening, you know what I mean? And so sometimes I wake up with this monster on my face and then I think, well, I'm preaching today and I hopefully will be far enough away, people won't be able to see it, right? You know what I mean? But here's the problem, Jesus is close enough to see all of that because you can feel his breath. And here's the problem about that, Jesus is close enough that he doesn't just see the zits on your face, he sees the warts in your soul. Oh, guys, he knows you better than anybody, and so he knows your potential, and he knows what could be, and he wants that for you. He wants you to live into this grand vision that he purchases for you on Easter that is so much more than what we do, but he also kind of sees our failures. He also sees what's holding us back from that, and yet there he is breathing on us all the same. And yet, here's the crazy thing. Warts and all, zits and all, Jesus uses us. You see, Jesus is so close to us that when you're having that hard conversation and it goes well, 
walk out of that funeral and I think that went well. Here's the reason Jesus needs to be that close. Because I can't do it well on my own, so he's got to be right there with me to make sure I don't mess it up. (laughs) And so when something goes well, it's ultimately because he did it. When something goes well, it's ultimately because he showed up. Listen, I preach a good sermon, and some people are real encouraging. They'll say, Kyle, that was really great, and I think, I don't really know. I, I just showed up. So we serve and we work, you know, we got a great team of musicians and I know that their heart is, it's not really me, it's this Jesus who's so close to me that I can feel his breath, that, that, that it was really him doing it. And then this is the freedom. This is the freedom that we find after Easter. You see, Jesus says, go. And he gives us his peace and he calls us into this mission. But then we come to find out that even just doing it with him, we're really kind of off the hook for doing it well. Because he's going to help us at every little juncture. He's going to help, not just in this sentence, not just in the mission. Guys, when your marriage sucks, there's Jesus. Breathe him. You can hear him breathing. There's, when, when the finances fall out, there's Jesus, and you can hear him breathing. There's, when the parenting is hard, there's Jesus, and you can hear him breathing. With the diagnosis, there's Jesus, and you can hear him breathing. But even more importantly, you're sitting across from a table from somebody, and they say, you know, my sister... I think she's going to burn in hell because somebody told her this, and I don't know if I want anything to do with this Jesus. And you start to kind of ramp up because you don't know what to say. All of a sudden, you get quiet enough for just a hot second, and you hear Jesus breathing. So there you are looking your kids in the face, and they ask the question, Mommy, where do, where do people go after they die? Huh. Just don't know. And then you listen to Jesus, and you hear him breathing. And there he is right alongside of you, giving you his peace, giving you his purpose, coming with you on this journey out of the locked room so that these things go well. Jesus, you can hear him breathing. Uh, This text leaves me with two questions. You know, a hundred years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is somebody's relationship to God. Next year, really, the only thing that matters is uh, somebody's relationship to God, but What I find is myself knowing that and hiding in the locked room anyway. And so my question is, what's your locked room? What keeps you locked in the room? What keeps you from saying something? What gets you nervous about joining Jesus and making all things new? What what keeps you in the locked room? For the disciples, it was fear, and that's what it is for a lot of us, because we go, I don't know what to say. Let's get Kyle to say it. He's smart. Six years of college and master's degrees. Can I tell you the truth? I still don't know what to say 90% of the time. 90% of the time, I'm still making it up as I go. So welcome to the party. What's keeping you in your room? Maybe, maybe it's you just don't know what to say. It's a skill thing or a knowledge thing. Maybe it's that it's a courage thing. Maybe you're scared. Maybe it's this like 2017 millennial postmodern like, She's just going to do what she does, and that makes her happy, and I'm going to do what I do, and that makes me happy. Okay? Maybe, maybe it's also this, on the other, when we get down in the layers, it's also, I just don't know if I'm comfortable with what people will think of me if I have this conversation with them. I don't know what people will think of me. Which, by the way, the root causes of those things are pride. It says, I think I know what's better for another person. And I think my vanity and appearance is important enough that I don't need to have this conversation. Sorry, it's just true. So what's keeping you in your room? 
But if you listen closely, you hear the breath of Jesus and you hear the click of keys and locks. Clunk, 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 because every reason you come up with to keep that door locked, you can't put locks on there fast enough. Jesus just is the best locksmith. He just keeps opening them up, opening them up, and pretty soon he does what some of us had done to them. Not me, I promise, but one of my brothers. The, the door comes off the hinges so that we just can't close it anymore. And so my second question, if, if it's, if you can't stay in the locked room anymore, it's to whom have you been sent? To whom have you been sent? My English teacher is very proud right now, not who have you been sent to. To whom have you been sent? Because the reality is there's these people that Jesus is seeking. You always find me. You always find me. There's these people that Jesus is seeking and he needs his preferred way of going about it is using us to do it. And so there's this person and he's seeking them and he's saying, there's, there's a tool I need that is just right for this job. There is somebody that, who's past and present, whose wounds and wholeness, whose personality, whose gifts and strengths and weaknesses all coalesce into the right tool to reach this one person. There are people that only Paul can reach. There are people that only Jenna can reach. There are people that only Nick can reach. There are people that only Caitlin can reach. There are people that only Heather can reach. So who have you been sent to? If you're a parent, the primary people you have been sent to for a season is your kids. Your primary role in, the in a child's life is disciple-making, helping them hear God's voice and doing what he says. That's your number one role. But then they leave. They also go through this phase, starting about age 12, where they don't care what you say anymore. So then you start praying for the person that's sent to them that is going to say the exact same thing that you've been saying, but they're going to act like they've never heard it before and come home and say, mom, I just got told this thing. And you're like, I have been saying that forever. I was a youth pastor. That was my whole work, just saying everything the parents said. But there are people at your work and in your family that you have been sent to. And here's the nature of your sentness. It is not an option. It is just a reality Jesus is waiting for you to live into. It's not like this option. It's not like, hey, I'll let Sid be sent, but I'm good. No, no, no. You're sent, man. You're, you're sent, girl. Like, that's just all there is to it. And I know you're right now going, Kyle, I just kind of want to come to church. I'm kind of new at all this thing. Great. Guess what? Next thing. It's just how it goes. But listen to what Paul says, and then we're going to pray and take communion. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe? And how can they believe if they have never heard? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how could anyone go and tell them without being sent? That's why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Look at your feet, would you? God thinks those are beautiful. And he's sending you to someone this week. Let me pray. Jesus, you have given us a joy that is unshakable and undeniable and real, and you want us to share it with others. And so, Father, would you send us to our kids, our grandkids, our friends, our nieces, our nephews, our parents, ugh, our parents, Jesus, to have these conversations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.